0: As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour with stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, mind, body, spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called Extremely Frightening and Upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and
1: I'm Mick Garris, and welcome once again to the fun size holiday edition of Postmortem AMA. I'm here to answer your questions, and you're going to ask those questions through our good friend producer Joe Russo. Joe, happy holidays to you.
2: Happy holidays. It's Christmas Eve Eve when this drops. Uh, <laughs> so so happy, merry everything. Uh, All
1: that stuff.
2: All yeah. that stuff. Um, shall we? Shall we jump in?
1: Yes, let's shelter in place and jump right in.
2: All right. Our friend Momo wants to know <laughs> if Mick was a color. What color would he be, and why?
1: We always open the show with the most important earth-shattering <laughs> questions and answers, don't we? Well, let me see. Again, I don't have my favorite, my list of favorite colors, like I don't have a list of favorite movies, but I would probably be plaid. Uh,
2: plaid, that's interesting. Yeah. That's, 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 like, that's like a cheat, though, because that's multiple colors. Interesting. Exactly. Okay. All right, all right, all right, I like it.
1: I can't be limited to a single color, a single
2: hue. <laughs> Let's do it. All right. I like it. Okay. Uh, I Aunt Shanks wants to know if there's an update on your biography and when will it be coming out?
1: Well, it keeps getting delayed and I'm still just surprised that anybody's writing one, but, um, Abby Bernstein is writing it. She's well along into it. I think it will be probably close to the middle of uh, 2021. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm.
2: There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in there, so I imagine it's taking <laughs> you know taking some time to write.
1: Yeah, uh, but uh, I don't know how many people will be interested in. It. I hope they will. I want want it to be successful for Abby and the
2: public. I think I think there's going to be a lot of post mortemers who order this book when it becomes available.
1: Uh, post mortemers thats a very good name for our <laughs> our, our listeners. Yeah. We
2: have been told that they want a T-shirt of that, so we might need to look into it.
1: Okay. Um it's a deal All right. yeah, the, book then- is, the books is an important thing. you know I've, I've got my most recent book out um, is these Evil things we Do, which is a collection of four novellas and a novel. and it is now available in paperback um, and in ebook on Kindle and at Amazon. And we've also just put out for the first time a paperback edition of my first book. Life in the Cinema, uh, short stories, and the screenplay for the feature-length version of Chocolate, which uh, never was made. So it is now available in paperback rather than a forty dollars special edition hardcover. So Great that's effect. at Amazon as well. So uh, there's your book news for the season. Last
2: last shop, minute shop Christmas shopping and and a way to spend those Amazon gift cards. There so, you go. There you go. Uh Destin Thrills. Dustin Thrills, that's what it is, okay. asks, <laughs> is there a horrific creature or monster that you identify most with?
1: Ooh, hmm, that's an interesting one. Uh, you know, I'd rather not identify with monsters, um, <laughs> but maybe the monster of the id from Forbidden Planet.
2: Ooh, that's good. Yeah. That's a good answer. You, know, you love Forbidden Planet, too. so uh,
1: It's that's, a good one. It's yeah. a good one, yeah.
2: Uh, well, I, I guess also kind of on that note, Uni Monsters wants to know, who's your favorite universal classic monster growing up and why?
1: Well, there's so many of them, but I I would have to go with their second monster, Frankenstein's monster. You know, the original Frankenstein is such a beautiful work of art, and it's so changed how horror movies were approached and Karloff's performance in it is greatly underrated. It's very understated and it's beautifully dramatic. In 1931, most of the acting was very, uh, well, it was stage actors going to the screen and nobody had really quite polished the difference between the subtlety of acting for a camera that can be right in your face and acting from a stage to the the far reaches of the rear of a live auditorium. So Karloff's performance in that and Jack Pierce's makeup are so one of a kind and unique and realistic in a, in a way grounding a film that is quite fantastical. Uh, So, and, and it was expanded even further in Bride of Frankenstein, which is an even more polished movie and uh, and Karloff is really quite remarkable in those. And I think more than any of the monsters from you know the Gill Man to the Wolfman to Dracula, um, it's the one that really is the most poignant. He uh, also
2: evokes a lot of empathy. Yeah.
1: Total, totally does. I mean, Larry Talbot, Juan Cheney Jr. and the Wolfman does as sure. well. But there's there's an innocence and pleading that underlies this outward monster that makes it really magical and complex.
2: I agree, I agree. Uh, Manticore asks, and this is something I'm not sure if it's true or not, because I've never heard it, but I'm interested to hear your answer. Uh, What was your involvement in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? Any good stories?
1: Well, I was involved in a very minor way uh, in the documentary of the making of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Frank Marshall directed the documentary and it's really terrific. But I had recently, before that, um, interviewed Stephen on my Z Channel show, The Fantasy Film Festival, and Stephen really enjoyed the interview, which he didn't always enjoy giving interviews. And so he had actually asked that I be brought in to do this. And this was before I started writing for him. Um, So uh, I interviewed Stephen for the making of. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And one of the things, uh, after we made it, um, there was this controversy uh, that we were talking about um, with the publicist uh, about, we were talking about poltergeist. And so there was a lot of controversy uh, uh, about who was going to be accredited director. And the publicity department was meeting with Frank and with Stephen and Kathy Kennedy and myself. And there was controversy about it being Steven Spielberg, who really directed it when Toby Hooper was accredited director, and I was there, so I know better than that, and we've talked about that story. But when the publicist asked Steven uh, who was going to be credited for directing uh, Poltergeist, I said, how about Christian Nyby?" who was, of course, the director who's credited on the thing, whereas Howard Hawks was thought to have directed the movie. So, so Stephen and Frank and I had a good laugh over it, and Kathy Kennedy and the publicist had no idea who Christian Nybe was. But <laughs> there, there is an offshoot of the story of the Indiana Jones.
2: So was that your first foray into doing behind-the-scenes for Amblin? Was that on Indiana Jones?
1: um
2: had you done poltergeist at that point
1: yeah no i uh i uh did publicity on poltergeist but i didn't do anything on the making of for that uh but yeah um i did the making of gremlins and the making of goonies well after that so this was because they knew me as an interviewer from my old z channel show not because they knew me as a writer or potential filmmaker
2: once again, the Zelig of horror. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, uh, Thomas Swift would l- love to hear your thoughts on. And I think this is a show I remember you saying you've enjoyed, uh, Lovecraft Country.
1: Yeah, I I really liked it. I, I I wasn't sure about it, but I I think it's dramatic. It's the effects are great. Um, I really love the menu. Um, And it's a blend of things, a really interesting blend of social comment. And again, we get into social comment, and then when it's not used to preach can really deepen the aspects of horror and fantasy and the whole idea of working within the realm of H.P. Lovecraft's literature and putting it into contemporary, well, it's not a contemporary story, it's but in contemporary filmmaking format. I think it's a really exciting piece of work that, um, you know, it goes places you don't expect it to. And again, it becomes quite deeply, um, deeply emotional. Uh, my least favorite elements are the Aryan looking characters who are in it. You know, the, the, the platinum blonde man and woman who are a part of it are the least effective part of it. Everything else really, I think, cooks on all cylinders.
2: Bark Eater Productions wants to know if you have any favorite movies you rewatch as inspiration before directing.
1: You know, I don't like to rewatch movies uh, in general, unless it's something I haven't seen in many years. And and yeah, I just, I like to be a sponge, but once if if I'm in pre-production on a movie I'm kind of I don't have time to watch movies and just the entire idea of making a movie or a television show is so inspirational that you want to just put everything you have into it and rather than be inspired by other things those are always in the back of my head that inspiration is always in my my uh my brain So when I'm doing pre-production, I'm trying the best I can to create a vision that is as new and try to go down new paths rather than try to recreate something that has informed my past. Now, there's no avoiding being inspired and having those inspirations feed your work, and that's a great thing, but I don't consciously set out to find something to inspire me in that way.
2: Part Vig27 wants to know, why did Wes Craven never direct an episode of Masters of Horror?
1: It was all about timing. Yeah. You know, we want he wanted to do it. We wanted him to do it. We talked about it. At both seasons, we came very close to it happening, and both seasons came right when he was working on different movies. So uh, it would have been great to have him. And the same thing with George Romero. Mm -hmm. You know, he came very close to directing Heckle's Tale, which I had written for him to direct. Uh, I'd actually written it for Roger Corman to direct as well. Um, And then Corman said, you know, I don't think I want to, at 80 years old, I don't want to be in the middle of a graveyard in Vancouver at three in the morning (laughs) in the winter. So um, both of those were people I really, really regret we weren't able to recruit because they both wanted to take part. Yeah, but um, yeah. it well, was
2: and and, and Wes And Wes as well, his name was on the original list for Nightmare Cinema. Um, but you yeah. know, sadly, he, he passed away before that came to pass.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then we also wanted to make Nightmare Cinema something more international yeah. and had a Japanese director and a Cuban director mm-hmm. and a British director as well as the, the two Americans.
2: Yep. You know, Arielis Ruiz wants to know... Your thoughts on Latin American horror right now?
1: Oh, I think it's really exciting. There's a lot of really great stuff coming out of Mexico, Venezuela, Brazil. Uh, there's so much really great Spanish horror out there. And one of my favorite of all of them is on Shudder. Um, it is uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid. That, again, I, you know, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but when you inject a, a really personal horror story with social commentary and reflect the world around you, it becomes that much more powerful. And I think Isa Lopez, who was the writer-director, who was known for doing romantic comedies before she did this movie, opened a new door and did something really original and really potent. And And that is indicative. There's so much passion and I think the Catholicism that is rife throughout Latin America also makes for a very sanguinary kind of storytelling that is, is taking, uh, taking root there. But um, it's, a, it's a very exciting place to, to see the movies come out of there.
2: And when you're done watching uh, Tigers Are Not Afraid on Shudder, you can tune into Issa's post-mortem episode from a few months ago, which was excellent.
1: That's right. She's really terrific. Very talented filmmaker. And I know she's working on a project project with Guillermo del Toro now.
2: She's, she's very busy. And Blumhouse, too. And Blumhouse. Um, yeah. Ryan writes, I'm curious about the role of storyboards in both you and me, Mick and Joe's productions. Uh, do either of you storyboard ahead of time? Do you look for anything in particular when choosing a storyboard artist? Uh, Mick, thoughts on storyboarding.
1: Well, I think storyboarding is very important when everybody has to be on the same page for specific frames and what you are doing. You know, when it comes to stunts, you storyboard the stunts. Yeah. I think that's a very important element. And when it comes to visual effects or special effects, that everybody needs to see specifically what those shots are going to be so that they can plan them accordingly. I'm not a guy who storyboards other things. Yeah. You know, hopefully you get an illustrator who helps you with a production design with your production designer working in concert with that so you can actually see rather than talk about what you're going to visualize. But in terms of laying out how a movie is going to be shot, I only use storyboarding when it's something that's absolutely crucial, like visual effects and stunts. Um, Shooting a scene um, that just the mechanics of a scene I'll shot list, but I don't really storyboard much. And yeah, I know I, your your films, Joe, have been more modest in scale, so really don't require much, but what do you do as far as that?
2: Well, you know, when I when I was first starting out with short filmmaking, I was trying to storyboard everything. And I think what I came to realize as time went by is it's, it's what you said. Uh, you can only storyboard basic coverage so many times before you get very tired of storyboarding it and realizing that you know, uh, it's better to, I think, actually be, have your shot list, know the covers that you need for a scene, but get there. And if it's just two people talking in a room, let, let the location <laughs> and the actors drive those shots, not be a slave to this is where the camera needs to be.
1: Yeah, a storyboard can be a prison because some of the best things you find are uh, on the moment. Very much spur of the moment uh, discoveries that you find with your actors, your locations, your your props, and all those things, and you can become like you say it can be slavish to a storyboard, and it keeps you from thinking uh, and thinking in the moment.
2: Yeah, I you know, and I and I agree with you. I think when the stunts are complicated and you need everyone on the same page, they can be extremely helpful. I remember on the Off pair Nightmare, uh, we had a stunt where we were going to have somebody go over the balcony railing of a house and we were going to storyboard that sequence because it was complex and there was a lot of moving pieces. Uh, and when the budget and schedule limited it to just being a stair fall, suddenly we didn't need an elaborate storyboard to cover it because there was only so many ways we could we could practically shoot it. And, uh, you know, it, it didn't become necessary.
1: Yeah. Well, in a chase scene, for example, the car chase in Sleepwalkers, I storyboarded that because I had a second unit director on it, right? And, uh, and you know I wanted each of the shots to be very specific, what we needed, and then get more than that, but at least get those things that I specifically know I need to construct an exciting chase.
2: Especially if you're not going to be there, uh, you know, approving all of the shots, too. I think that, that's when storyboards can come, become exceedingly helpful.
1: Yeah. And then I ended up having to go back and and shoot additional footage for that because it wasn't really captured properly. So
2: there you go. So Charles asks when doing a film adaptation from a novel, what are some of the decisions that go into what to cut or modify? Did you ever have to make any tough cuts?
1: Well, Fortunately, when I've uh, worked with King, most of what I've done with him, he has written the screenplay, or at least three of the major ones. Um, But the biggest thing is realizing a book is not a movie. And King knows that he can separate those when people say, boy, uh, how can you stand all these shitty movies that ruined your books? Well, they're two totally different things. The book stands as it always did and the movies are what they are you have to judge them on themselves so books being very internal often you know you have to lose a lot of the internal part of the drama of the characters a lot of books dwell a lot on what's going inside somebody's mind and if there are ways to project that outwardly then that's the job of a filmmaker um but you really have to tell a movie story differently than you tell a book story in that it's visual. You have to visualize it. You have to amplify the emotional and dramatic content of each scene by how you construct your shot, how you frame your shot, how the actors perform. And it's a more visceral and propulsive medium than the passive medium of reading a book. So, it's really making dramatic structure. You have to build and release tension in a very different way than a book you put down and read, you know, you read it for an hour, you put it down, you come back to it the next day. Here we're going for a two hour stream of storytelling that has to have a beginning, a middle and a satisfying end. A book can be more nebulous, a film, a successful film needs to tell its story in completion. And a book doesn't need to do that. It can be more ethereal. So I think you just need to know what you need to make a visceral movie that is propulsive and dramatic and tells its tale in a satisfying way. More so, you just need to know what in the book works in that way. Stephen King writes in a very cinematic manner, as well as writing very internal stuff. But... um, you know, it, it's just a, a matter of knowing the difference. You need to be a you need to be a reader as well as a filmmaker to to tell a story well on the screen, I think.
2: I'm gonna ask a, a selfish follow up question to that. <laughs> okay. uh, cause so so because I'm about to go through this myself and I'm curious how you approach it. Uh, not not adapting a novel. But when you come in as the second or third writer on a, a feature film project, um, how do you approach uh, the material that's been written before and what you use moving forward? How have you ex- experienced that in the past?
1: Almost every time I'm not the second or third writer. Ah, okay. I'm almost always the first screenwriter. However, on Critters 2, I was the second Uh, David Toohey had written the script originally, and then I came in to direct and rewrite. And on desperation, Stephen King had written it as a feature, and when we turned it into a three-hour TV movie, I did the revisions and put it in shape for that. Um, It's a matter of respect, and it's a matter of intuition. You know, if I'm rewriting Stephen King, it's different than rewriting David Toohey. Um and especially if it's the author of the book who's written the screenplay adaptation you see what he feels uh, are the most important elements and you need to understand that and why those were important to him mm-hmm. um when it's when it's not somebody who uh you know david Tui's a terrific filmmaker and screenwriter, yes, yes. yeah but it's not something that i needed to go for they brought me in because they wanted changes in it and they wanted it to reflect the personality of the director, which was really great for me as a first time director, feature director. So, you know, you want to put, a film has its own personality and it reflects yours and it can reflect parts of a personality you don't realize you have. You know, let it be personal, let it, whatever feels right. You know, uh, so much about all arts uh, is intuitive. And you don't find it in uh, an instruction book. Uh, you know, all of these books on filmmaking and screenwriting and all of that may well be helpful, but it's more intuition than it is uh, book knowledge. And so I think you just have to run on, on intuition. And, but that intuition has to be fed by an education and knowledge of the format in which you are working. You know, if you're writing a book, you better have read a lot of books before you do. And if you're making a movie, you better have a good understanding of what makes a good movie and the construction of a good film or television show.
2: I I completely agree. When people ask me how to become a better writer, I always say, read more screenplays.
1: Yes. (laughs) And more books for that matter. Books too,
2: absolutely, 100%. Uh, Well, all right, so to, to wrap up our... Uh, Holiday AMA uh, to wrap up 2020. Uh, I thought this is a very interesting question. Uh, Grins from the grave asks, Nick, what is the meaning of life? (laughs) Not to put you on the spot.
1: Well, yeah. Okay. It's uh, what's the end of Monty Python's meaning of life. It's, it's very much that it's just to be good, try and, and do the best you can and uh, not leave too much smoke in your wake. You know, um, I agree. You know, I, it, obviously, everybody finds their own. I know it's a jocular question. And uh, so I don't have a funny answer off the top of my head. So it's just to do good.
2: <laughs> I I completely agree. Uh, on that note, uh, I look forward to us continuing to do good in 2021, and, uh, and happy we've got some
1: big surprises coming up uh, for the ne- for 2021.
2: Yes, for sure. Do uh, happy holidays to all our fans and to you, Mick. And good uh
1: you, happy holidays, everybody, and happiest of New Years. And thank goodness, 2020 is just about wrapped up. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would let the world know about it by reviewing and rating it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you have comments or questions for our Ask Mick Anything shows, send them to Producer Joe at Joe Russo tweets or to at Mick Garris PM on Instagram or Twitter or the Postmortem with Mick Garris Facebook page. This is a brand new address, so don't forget it. That's at Mick Garris PM on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you'd like to see my vintage and recent video interviews, making of documentaries, and audiobooks of some of my short stories, go to my website, MickGarrisInterviews.com.
2: Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other
1: Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.